Seichel. And if you're following in the English, obviously it's the last um, discussion that the intellect is proposing. <coughs> and the intellect responds and is answering the question that the intellect is answering the question which the soul logically asked that we speak about the fact that God created man with imperfections, with shortcomings, purposefully so, which is the discussion that we're going to have this evening, why man was created with certain shortcomings, and that the challenge of man is to try to do his best to overcome those shortcomings, to modify those shortcomings, and in that man grows and he gains a depth of growth that he would not get if it would just be given to him. If he's challenged, he has to make choices. So then the, the, his opportunities for growing in deep ways, in meaningful ways, is, is, is obviously much greater. So the neshama, the soul says, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm willing to accept that concept as a concept, but I'd like you to clarify for me what you mean by shortcoming and what you mean by a more wholesome state that we're supposed to be going towards. What, are, what, are, what is it supposed to mean? In essence, the intellect really started off by saying that we have to understand what shortcomings are. And the soul said, but we're never going to know what shortcomings are until we know what the goal is that we are reaching to begin with. So, the intellect agrees with that, that premise and now is going to define it. Now, I'm going to be running through it rather quickly now because it's a review. We spent the entire class last week on, on the answer of the intellect, and I just want to pick up and then begin elaborating from the new area of the text. Those of you that have problems with it should refer to tape number three or get me uh, at a different time. Amar HaSeichel, HaShlemus HaZeh Prashat Hu Min HaMikro Min when we talk about a more wholesome state that man strives towards, if one would want a definition of that, I could say very simply that I could prove that in chapter and verse and by virtue of logic as well. In one of two fashions. Vahu, let's just get what it is first. What is the more wholesome state for man to be approaching? that man should cleave or should feel a closeness and um, a depth of, of feeling of God's holiness, of God's wholesomeness. Venehene, that's number one. Venehene mehasagas kvaidai, and receive pleasure from understanding his honor or understanding his will of, for man. Belishu meinea mafridu ma'akev. Without any hindrances or barriers or anything that preoccupies that experience or is in contradiction to that experience. Right, again, I don't want to go through all of the intricacies of that. We dealt with that last week. But in essence, the intellect's answer is that man's coming close to God. Man's appreciating what God is, what his will is, what his essence is about, what he wants of man being able to appreciate that, being able to sense it, being able to enjoy it, 
And being able to appreciate it, it is all a state that will bring man closer to his own fulfillment. And that's what we were dealing with last week. That this is not just a religious answer to a question, but it's a question of self-fulfillment. And we went into a lengthy explanation last week why this is an answer of self-fulfillment, which we can't go over now. We can find this either by chapter and verse, and the chapter and verse would be, he's going to bring a number of, of, of places. The first one is in Isaiah, Az Tisanagal Hashem. Then, at that great moment, you'll find tremendous pleasure in God, which is a reference to the epitome of what man can experience in a lifetime. Or the verse in Psalms which says, Yeshua Yesharim Es Panecha, that those that stay, stand or sit before you with a straightness, with a straight, straightforward approach with integrity will be the ones that will experience your your face they will experience your honor your will have an appreciation of you be able to look you in the face kind of an idea and the third verse also in psalms that ultimately the greatest uh, pleasure and happiness comes from being able to face god now this is something which I did not speak about so much last week and I'd like to just touch on it just for a moment because it's, it's somewhat of a, a, a personal interpretation, I think a valid interpretation, you don't have to get afraid that I'm uh, getting into personal interpretations like uh, you know some others do, but, um, but I just want to make a, a reference to a very interesting thing here. And I think it's a very beautiful thing about man that uh, it just has to be harnessed in the, in the correct way. It has to be used in the correct way. Uh, when we deal with all kinds of difficult situations, in particular suffering, which is the topic of this upcoming seminar, so now you can't even ask me any questions about it because it's on the table already. Um, the, when we talk, for instance, as an example, about the concept of suffering, one of the most fascinating parts of the difficulty to deal with the question of suffering, in my opinion, has a lot to do with the fact that man, deep, deep down, wants to be accepted by God. Wants to be accepted. Wants to know that they stand before God and that they're accepted by God. Now, you'll very often find people that are you know, cursing under their breath that this isn't fair to happen to them and, you know, and everything else and I can't repeat half of what they say. And, and it would seem that these people are in revolt and would like to throw the whole darn thing off completely. And in essence, it's a very interesting thing because in psychology it's also true. Sometimes when you have a very, very strong reaction to something, it's not because the, you want to throw that thing off, it's because you, you want it and you're not getting it. So in, if you want to call it sour grapes, you can call it sour grapes. But because of the frustration of not having it and not being able to cope with having it, the person almost in self-defense tries to throw it off from themselves and throw it away from themselves. That who needs it, it doesn't make sense, it's, you know, and so on and so forth. And this is very true. I think it's very important when people are involved in trying to help other people in situations of suffering that it's very important that no matter how much the person shoots out in terms of uh, bitterness and frustration and all of that, 
it's it's only because there's underneath it all an underlying premise that I would want to stand before God differently. I would want to be accepted. There's all kinds of problems involved in this. I'm not accepted. I'm not being treated right. And deep, deep down, I want it. And I don't feel that I'm getting it. And because of the resentfulness of not getting it, when you don't, when you don't get the love that you feel that you want, what do you do to the person that you're expecting it from? You get angry at that person and you resent that person. While in essence, it's a paradoxical kind of thing. What are you getting angry because you want the love from that person? So you're not going to get it through resenting not getting it because the resentment is counterproductive to ever building the relationship, which is a whole discussion. We'll leave parts of that for that Sunday. But this is something which is very interesting, that that one of the challenges that a Jew has in terms of suffering is not... In the, in, the, in the burden of suffering to turn away from facing God. Three quarters of, a lot of the problems that we run into philosophically and otherwise is because when we meet up with a situation of suffering, and I'm not saying there's tons and tons of legitimate questions and that need answers. I'm not saying dismiss it all. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But the main thing is to always communicate. Look, look towards God. When two people, when one person feels a resentment because the other person is not giving the love or attention that should be given, the worst thing that can happen is that they don't continue communicating, that they don't keep looking at each other. Right? That's the worst thing. To look away or to only see the bad side of the person and not to see the other side of the person will never get you any place in a relationship. And it's the same thing when we refer to God. And if we look in the Chumash, we have a fascinating, a very fascinating example of this, of this concept at, in, the, in the first chapters of, of the book of Genesis in Bratius. Abraham is a man of tremendous loving kindness. Tremendous loving kindness. And he finds it right within his system of loving kindness to stand before God and to petition for five cities of which Stom and Amora were two of the, those five cities. They were horrible cities. They were demoralized cities. They were the antithesis of all of the loving kindness that he stood for in his life, the chesed that he stood for in his life. And nevertheless, Avram found it right and appropriate to stand before God and to petition and to pray to God, maybe there can be a way to save these cities. I'll get involved with the cities, forgive the cities, uh, because of the merit of the right people that can raise the level of the other people, forgive the cities. And he petitioned God, as we know, if there are 50 tzaddikim, 10 for each, and if there's 45 and a 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. And when, in, when there was unfortunately nothing, so then Avram had to give up. So if we look carefully at the verses over there, it says in the verses over there that Avram stood... In a, in a certain place that he had a vantage point from there to see all the cities, the whole Kikar, Kikar, to be able to see the entire plain. He was able to see the entire thing. And he, he stood there before God praying for mercy, compassion, love, all of the things that we talked about in the 60s. Right? And then it says that the prayers were not accomplished 
and God destroyed the cities in an utter destruction of such a proportion that the other onlookers believed that another destruction similar to the one of the flood was coming. And it says in the next verse, And Abraham got up the next morning, and he prayed at the same place to God that he had prayed the day before. Vayashkem Avram Bamboiker, and Abraham got up the next morning, El Amokem Asher Sham, to the place that he had stood there originally. And it is from that verse that we learn that Abraham instituted the Shachris prayer. From that particular verse. Vayashkem Avram Bamboiker, El Amokem Asher Sham, Avram got up and prayed in the same place that the day before he had prayed and had not succeeded. Right? And he prayed to God and he instituted the Tfilas Shachras. So one would think to themselves that if this was the place that a day before he asked and wasn't answered, so from the, and now he goes back to the very same place. By the way, we also learn that a person should establish wherever he prays, a certain spot that is his regular spot. shouldn't daven one day in the living room and the other day in the dining room and the other day in the gym. And the, he should try to find one place that that's his place of prayer. Obviously, to go to a place where there's a minyan is, is the best. But in the event that we don't all have that opportunity or the situations don't arise, so we all have our own wall in our homes. Uh, but there should be one spot. And where do we learn that from? We learn that also from Abraham. So a person can think to himself, here was where Avram goofed. This was the place where Avram's requests were turned down. And Avram went back to the very same place that the day before his prayers were turned down. And from the place that he stood on the second day, he was able to see the entire destruction of five cities. So he was looking at a God that destroys at some point in time when nothing else works. And nevertheless, he was praying to God. And the concept is this, this, this very concept, that our pagisha, our approach to God, there's no, there's no big thing in approaching God when everything is going hunky-dory and everything is nice and everything is pleasant. Sure, then it's very easy. The challenge is, is to be able to look, so to speak, in the direction of God and accept a total picture of God and not only a partial picture of God. And that's what we learn from Avram. As long as Avram saw the love and the peace and everything else of God, right, fine. But we don't yet learn prayer from there. When do we learn the law of prayer? When do we learn the concept of true communication? When we can face God and communicate with God out of love or out of the opposite of it, of what appears to be the opposite of it. That's true communication. A person that only communicates with their friends when their friends do them favors and doesn't communicate when things aren't so good, that's not communication. That's, that's not the challenge of communication. The ch challenge of communication is where there's difference, where there's difficulty, where there might be a, a display of harshness. Communicate your feelings. Communicate... Keep the lines open instead of just wanting to face one part of God as opposed to the other. And that's a very crucial concept. It's parenthetical to what we're doing tonight, but it's important to, to, to grapple with. To face a whole God as opposed to only wanting to face part of a God. I heard from, um, from one of my teachers of blessed memory, Rafutna Zechariah Levracha, that if it would have been up to him, there is a custom that there are certain portions of the Torah at the end of the Chukosai and at the end of Kisavo 
There are portions there that deal with the the prophecy of, of terrible punishments, which, by the way, have been proven in many different ways, including by computers. The second prophecy being the one in Kisava, referring to the Holocaust of the 40s. In any case, there's a custom that it's read quickly, it's read softly, as opposed to other portions of the Torah that are read more loudly and more, and more, more at an even pace. And the idea being, because we don't want it to be a bad mazel and we don't want to talk about punishment and so on and so forth. And Rav Hutner, once said, if it would have been up to him, he would be mavatal the minig. He would, he would take away that custom. He says, because it's misinterpreted to mean that we're not supposed to look at a God that sometimes reprimands and punishes. And to, to give that kind of a false message in, in, in uh, developing a relationship with God is bound to fall out. It's not, a true, it's not a true message and it's not a true relationship and sooner or later the bottom's going to fall out of that kind of a relationship. A relationship we all know has its, has its better times and it has its more difficult times and it's both together that's, that's what creates a, a true bond. Getting over those, getting over those barriers and, and, and keeping the facing the entire situation as opposed to blocking out a part of it. And, yeah. Uh, when Abraham was pleading with God, he stopped at the point of ten, I believe, right? He didn't go below ten. Now, it's possible that there were uh, good uh, people below, uh, fewer than the number ten. Now, the question is, uh, how would God have responded to that? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just answer very, very briefly that, <coughs> that um, in essence it was even less than 10. The request was even less than 10. I don't want to go into all of the intricacies of it, but the commentaries talk about the fact that Abraham even petitioned for less and he would be counted in together with God to become the 10. There, there's, there's a lot of discussion about that. You're asking a good question but it would, uh, it would take more time than, than the parenthetical that I'm getting into to answer it in terms of the text itself. Mm-hmm. Abraham's had certain proofs from various places that under a certain amount of people, he had already historical proof that under a certain amount of people there was no basis to save a city in the merit of one or in the merit of two, based upon previous previous punishments that had come to the world, which I don't want to get into now, but Rashi and the commentaries in the, in the Chumash deal with this, and you know, you can do a, I can show you a, some of the sources well, for it later on. That, uh, if the number is ever, uh, fewer than 10, then uh, God would not uh, save the city. Is that what you're saying? There, there's the possibility, depending upon what the combinations are. I just don't want to get into it, you know, at this particular point. See, in Judaism, the, the concept of saving a city because of a person is not the Christian concept that do it for the sake of this person. There has to be an intimate connection between the people that are the tzaddikim and the cities where there's reason to believe that there will be enough influence and enough, enough elevating of the cities through those people to, to petition that this situation is not an unsolvable and un, unresolvable issue. It's not a concept, do it just for this righteous person, even though this righteous person has nothing to do. It's not at all that kind of a concept, but I don't want to get into that now. 
in, in general, it's, it's, uh, it's worthwhile it's worthwhile to just uh, make mention of the fact that we try as much as possible to keep the questions towards the end in order that we should be able to cover a certain amount of ground and then there's plenty of time for questions at the end. Okay, let's continue on. I just brought that out because all of these verses talk about the delight of facing God. Right? A lot of the tension, a lot of the problems that come up is because we're not yet willing to make that painful move of facing God completely and dealing with all aspects of God. And even though it sounds like a paradox that facing the entire God should seem to be painful and not a happy experience, but in the long run, dealing with the entire concept of God gets us, gets us to an entire relationship. While if to begin with, we try to veil out, we try to, to block out parts of it, so those parts never come into the relationship and the relationship has to remain deficient. Okay, let's go on. And there are many others like this in many places. You can find these in all of the different corners of the different prophetic literature, in the scriptures. This is clear and written out and anybody can see this. Pick yourself up, learn those books, and you'll find it there. In other words, don't blame me for a new concept. This is constantly referred to all over. And if you're more rabbinic in nature and you'd like to have sages' uh, statements to prove this concept, I'll prove it that way. The world to come is not a world to come in terms of physical pleasures of eating and drinking, but it is a concept of pleasure. That is the epitome of what God wants ultimately for what man has done. The tzaddikim, the righteous people, the people that have accomplished in their lifetimes what they were set out to, yeshvim, they are sitting there, and their crowns of what they have conquered through their lifetime. And I don't mean physical territory, but what they have conquered through their own choices and priorities and, and all of that, those crowns of what they've accomplished through their choices are on their heads and by virtue of how much they've put in in terms of effort they have tremendous pleasure from the radiance of God's presence this is chapter and verse and rabbinic, rabbinic um, sayings and then I'll give you a svara. I'll give you an argument that's a, a logical argument why man's ful- self-fulfillment would be accomplished through this appreciation of a full relationship with God. What is the logical argument? So he says the following, Hanishama, the soul, and this, by the way, is also something that we went into in great depth last week, Hanishama eina elachela the human being, the essence of the human being is his soul whatever we mean by soul. But the essence of the human being is his soul. And his soul is the most dynamic part of his existence because it is the thing, the, uh, the aspect of the human being that is closest to the very existence of God. We talk about God being an absolute existence. We talk about the soul being a dependent existence, being a created being as, as opposed to God being a creator. There are distinctive differences philosophically between God's existence and everything else that exists. Everything else is dependent upon God's will to exist here today, gone tomorrow. The existence of God is a more absolute existence. 
there are distinctive differences between the existence of God and everything else that exists. And this is what we mean, by the way, when we say in our prayers, Hashem Echad, that God is one. We don't only mean God is one in the sense that God is the only thing, if you want to call it that, the only aspect that we worship. But when we say God is one, we say that God has um, a unique existence that is shared by nobody else. Not in the sense of religion and in terms of worship, but in terms of existence. God has a unique existence that only He has. And relative to His existence, every other existence is not the same kind of existence. It's a, it's a second category existence, a sub-level of existence. And not even compared, in essence, to the existence of God. In any case, but be that as it may, the neshama of man is the thing which truly exists more than anything else in this world and is second only to the existence of God. That's what the neshama is. And obviously, if that's what the soul is, it has to be a tremendously dynamic part of the human personality. So that's so now we're defining the neshama is a dynamic part of the human personality. Fine. Now, what does the neshama want? Okay, we talk about fulfillment. We talk about self-realization. So let's ask the question, not what I want in terms of my heart and what my eyes saw and everything else, but what does my neshama want? What does my neshama want? And this is what Rav Meshachayim Latzata says. What the neshama wants from the moment that it comes into this world is to be able to return to to home turf, to to a spot that it feels comfortable in. When it's thrust into this world, it's terribly uncomfortable in this physical world, in this bound-up world with all kinds of physical things. It's, it's very much bound up. And the neshama, from the moment that it comes here, so to speak, I don't want to use the term, but I'll use it anyway, the, wants to go back. In other words, it wants to be able to find itself as close to its source as possible. There's an urge, there's a thirst for the neshama to be close to its source. Rameshe Chaim Litzata continues and says, The truth of the matter is that this thirst of something to return to its source is a phenomenon that we see even in the natural world, in the physical world, that things have an urge to be close to their source or to return to their source. We mentioned the phenomenon of the fish that go back to the waters which in, that they were born in to die and things of that nature. And the neshama, the soul, is in constant motion to get to it from the moment that it comes into this world. It's not as if it goes on a vacation for, for 10 years or 20 years and it, it's constantly struggling. The struggle is not necessarily always interpreted in the, in the correct way. We sometimes know that there's something cooking inside of us and we look for all kinds of ways of fulfilling this need or this thirst, or this seeking fulfillment, and little do we know where that need is really coming from, where, what's really irking us, and we spoke about that last week as well. Now, and this is the new part. Ach, Exactly what is, what do we mean by Dveikus Bashem? What is the connection to God? What does that mean? It sounds very nice, it sounds very evangelical, but what is it really supposed to mean? Coming close to God. It doesn't mean physically, because physically you can't come close to something that's not physical. So, what does it mean coming close to God? What does it mean cleaving to God? 
What is this dveikus, umaha sagazas, and what are these perceptions of God that you're talking about? As long as we're in the in our situation of shortcoming, it's very difficult to explain what closeness to God is and what understanding and appreciating God is all about. Maimonides once said it very eloquently when Maimonides said, try to teach a person that never had the power of sight, the gift of sight, the beauty of a flower. It's very, very difficult to communicate the beauty of a flower to a person that didn't have the gift of sight or a person that for some reason didn't have the gift of scent to be able to smell something explain to them the fragrance of a flower or better yet the difference in the fragrances of flower there are certain things that don't translate themselves in vocabularies they don't translate themselves through logical means and what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying over here is that to try to define Zveikos to try to, to, to define cleaving to God, to try to define understanding, Hasagas Hashem, and the pleasure, all of these things are very, very difficult while we're in the midst of shortcoming. It's very difficult to understand it. This is why, and it's very legitimate, this is why when we grow in our Judaism, in virtually all cases, it's impossible to really grow in Judaism in a deep way without making a commitment to experiencing Judaism. You try to explain to somebody and argue logically the Shabbos to somebody, the concept of Shabbos, or the concept of Kashrus, or the concept of many mitzvahs that our lifestyles are in contradiction with, or might be in contradiction with. You can be the most lucid philosopher, the greatest orator in the world, there's something missing in that person's connection to the mitzvah, to that connection to that mitzvah until the person does it and experiences it. And very often, what is short in understanding before experiencing the mitzvah, all of a sudden disappears. Oh, as a que- disappear, the questions disappear in the experience. Now, where's the logic and where's the seichel and where's the cerebral function? But all of a sudden, they, they disappear. And the reason for that is that when you talk about spirituality, it's very hard to define spirituality without trying to give an experience alongside of it. And then, then everybody experiences it differently. And every person's experience is legitimate for their neshama where it's at, at, that, at their particular point. There are many, when people come back from Eretz Yisrael, one of the things that I always love to do is I like, I like to ask them what they felt. Exactly what did you feel when you visited the Western Wall? And for as many people as I've asked, I've gotten many, many different answers. Most of them positive answers. Some of them a little bit, you know, a scary kind of answers or, you know, difficult that they, you know, the experience was too weighty. But it's all legitimate. Because the experiences, as they, if they allow themselves to feel and they allow themselves to express their experience, that's usually a tremendous barometer of where the neshama is at in, in relationship to w- what they've just done. And that's what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying over here. To really understand it, no words, no books can tell you what Tveikos Bashem is. No words and books can really define for you in entirety Hasagah Bashem, understanding and appreciating God's will 
and certainly not to explain why the pleasure of understanding that is better than a quarter pounder or something like that. That's those things. But without knowing what this cleaving is, without knowing what this understanding is, without knowing what this deep pleasure and appreciation is all about, the very fact that we know that there is such a thing as coming close to God, understanding God, appreciating God, being thrilled and enjoying every moment of it, so then we scratch our heads and say, hey, that's very nice on paper, but I never experienced those things. I never felt those things. Those things are really there? I'm telling you they're there. Take my word for it, they're there. So then, working backwards, I say to myself, I'm missing something. I've miss, I'm missing something. If you tell me with a definity that these are things that are available within Yiddishkeit, and I say that I don't know if they are, if they aren't, but I certainly never experienced them, and I tell you with a definity, take my word for it, and you're willing to take my word for it. So then we take to then move to the next step, and then I ask myself, yes, but I'm not experiencing them. I can't even imagine them. I don't even have any, one experience in my life that comes close, c- comes close to either appreciating God by his uh, by understanding Him or enjoying a closeness to God or any of that, or feeling that I have somebody in the world called God, other than the duty to to worship Him or whatever it is. That already points to me that there's something missing. You know, that was, by the way, that was, by the way, uh, one of the strong points of Hasidus. I hope I don't uh, turn anybody off by saying this, but this was one of the strong points of Hasidus. One of the strong points of Hasidus was that disciples that went to their Rebbe and watched the Rebbe in action doing a mitzvah, or 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 the the tish, or the you know or whatever it was, and saw the enjoyment that the rebbe was experiencing, the delight, the total involvement. It communicated one thing to the disciple: I might not be where my rebbe is, but this is a real thing, because I see how a person can enjoy it. I see how a person can radiate with it, and this all became a role model of inspiration to the disciple. While it, in the person in his own life was so full of shortcomings, and even if he wasn't full of shortcomings, his whole lifestyle was one that didn't give him any kind of exposure or experience or opportunity to be involved so intimately, but when he used to go periodically, if it was every week or if it was for Yontif or whenever it was, and he was able to see that there are people that actually live this stuff and that they actually enjoy it, and that they're actually growing with it, and that their insights are very deep, and that they have something to offer in terms of what they say to you, these are real people. They talk to me, they talk to my problems, and nonetheless, they're, totally, they're so connected and they're so involved in it. And this was, this was sometimes an instrument of, of education that was phenomenal. This is Sometimes a person was able to go through a lifetime being connected in terms of faith and being able to push himself to do more and to grow more and be more simply because that person of realness was in front of them. Right? And this, is a, this was a major plus and this is what he's pointing to. By myself, I wouldn't know what it is because I'm busy with, with, with my paper clips. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But looking at other people that have moved, moved forward and are involved and do enjoy and do understand and have insights to share 
that are extremely meaningful, though they are, so to speak, in my belief, in a different world, all of a sudden that comes home, that there's something very real there. And that's what he's pointing out. By knowing that the wholesomeness that man can reach is by this cleaving, so too we will know that the shortcoming is our distance from it. Our distance from it. That word distance is a very interesting word. Right? It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It means that we are far away from it. But it's there. It's a distance. We're in a different mindset, we're in a different situation, but it's there. There's a distance from it, okay? Now, And then we begin to ask ourselves the questions, what is it in my lifestyle, in, co- in comparison to this great person that I'm looking at, what is it in my lifestyle that prevents me from being like that person, or experiencing like that person? Is it what I do during the day? Is it certain characteristics that I have to overcome that I'm not willing to face? I begin to ask myself questions. Where can I start to be like that role model? In, in Lozado's case, the role model is God himself. I'm just trying to bring it down a little bit more to earth for ourselves. You know, God is not a role model. Who's God? And it's very hard to, to perceive of God as a role model. But if we can take people that are, so to speak, involved in this process and use them as a role model, right, use them as a role model, so this becomes very, this becomes very real. Here is a person, okay, here is a person that's totally delighted in his Yiddishkeit. I think it's a drag. Right? What makes me different than the other person? And let's put aside for the moment that he was born into the right place and he's been doing it for, because there's, there's just as many uh, very, in, uh, very uh, threatening kinds of challenges to the person that was just born into it as much as to the person that finds it through his searching. There's plenty, plenty of challenges taken for granted, nobody asks questions about it, it becomes rote, it becomes done just by, because this is what's expected of you, and then you turn around 30, 40 years later, and all of a sudden you ask yourself, what is it all about? You know, and maybe by habit it's not so easy to leave, but it becomes a major question. So we should, we have to put away the easy excuses that would that would make that difference. And especially when we're talking about a relationship with God, we always have to keep one thing in mind. God put me here. Let's go with the premises of Lozado. God put me here. God put me here because he wanted to bestow of his goodness upon me. Bestowing of his goodness upon me means this relationship with him. So he has a way for me to be able to get to that relationship. The questions that I have to ask myself is, okay, for today... What can I deal with that will make me one step closer to that person that I would like to emulate? Let's, let's do with, is it jealousy? Is it anger? Is it the fact that I don't give myself the right time of day to be, to be involved in something? Is it because I'm too proud to be able to connect myself to another person and ask the other person for advice and for inspiration? There can be a host of reasons. We can be here all night with all of the reasons that man constructs but there, there are loads of them, and each one of them is a chesarin, is one of these shortcomings. Those are the shortcomings. So the nish, nishama says, what are shortcomings, 
and says the only way to understand shortcomings is by understanding what is shleimus wholesomeness. So now to get the full picture, the full picture is if you have a general idea of what wholesomeness is all about, and then you say, well, these are not in me, and why aren't they? Because of X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z are the chesronos. X, Y, and Z then are those shortcomings that I have to start dealing with. This is extremely down-to-earth. This is not some kind of spacey stuff. What is the wholesomeness? What am I looking to emulate? Why, why, isn't it, why isn't it within my power to do? Or why is it not here yet? What elements would get me closer to that mark? And then go ahead and do it. And I must stop over here. And I'm going to throw something at you that you're going to think is very unfair, but I'll throw it anyway. Because I think it's a very important point, and it has a lot to do with the spirit of Yiddishkeit as opposed to the letter of the law of Yiddishkeit. Very often you can ask questions about doing things that when you ask for advice, if they're right or wrong to do, technically, in the letter of the law, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, there are quote-unquote, I hate to use the word loopholes, but there are ways of pressing it up and painting the town red within the, conf- within the parameters, so to speak, of, of, of halach as well. And to some people, this is a Yiddishkeit that's very attractive to them. That's very, you know, very appealing. It's called Tansing of Tzvei Chasinus, dancing at two weddings at the same time. But, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say, but anyway. Um, but the truth of the matter is that very often we don't have to ask ourselves so much the question, is it technically right or wrong? But we have to ask ourselves the question, but is this getting me in the direction of where I'm supposed to be going? That's a question that has to be asked. In other words, you go to a guidance counselor in college and say, should I take this course or shouldn't I take this course? So the guidance counselor says, well, there's nothing wrong with this course, but it's really not going to help you in your profession. Is it wrong to take the course? No. So you're a bug. You like to take a lot of courses. You like to have a broad, well, well, you know, well-rounded. There's nothing wrong with it, but if the guidance counselor is honest, the guidance counselor will say, this isn't going to get you in the direction that you're going. It's a distraction. If you must have the distraction, take the distraction, but don't fool yourself. It's not getting you where you're interested in going. Right? And that's sometimes the answer that a responsible counselor is going to give in Yiddishkeit as well. There are things that are not necessarily wrong, but are they getting me where I'm going? Life is full of people hiding behind things that are technically right, but are not getting me where I'm interested in going. Life is full of them. Now, for a person, from the minute that he wakes up to the minute that he goes to sleep, to always ask himself, is this getting me where I'm supposed to be going, can become, you know, become a, a very, very tedious and a very frustrating process. A person can go crazy from it. A person needs a little bit, you know, more, some people need more, other people need less, but everybody needs a certain amount of leave me alone, I want to do it because I want to do it. Every person has a certain measure of that. Every person has a certain measure. But it could be, it could be, and I, with the capital C, it could be that we sometimes hide a lot of what we do behind 
it just being technically. Now, some of you might look at me like, you know, the rabbi's like completely crazy. He's talking about what's right but doesn't get me in the right direction. You know, he's forgetting about all the things that are wrong. I'm, I'm, po- I'm pointing in a very... I- I'm saying this because... And I'm, I'm not trying to um, flash red signal lights or anything like that. But that's usually where we get messed up. When we, when we, uh, when we hide behind these kinds of things and we don't at least occasionally ask ourselves, well, am I moving closer in that direction or not? What happens is that we become indulgent in those kinds of things and we lose a sensitivity of mark. We lose the sensitivity of the target that we're trying to reach. And one thing then leads to the other, and then we'll do things that are even counterproductive. In other words, there's a certain sensitivity in, in terms of the time, the energy that goes into it. And if we allot major, major time to things that don't move us in a specific direction, then we will be more open to using some of the time even in counterproductive. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Are you saying that if somebody wants to be an accountant and if he studies hummus, he's not going, uh, he's going, uh, he's diverting himself? He wants to become an accountant and he's learning hummus, so hummus is diverting him from becoming an accountant. Uh, That's not exactly what I meant, to be perfectly honest, but let me explain it a little bit better. We have to make, um, and, and the question raises something which is important to clarify. We have to make a distinction and, and we do make this distinction to ourselves very quietly, but we have to verbalize it in, in view of Yiddishkeit, in view of Judaism. We have to make a distinction between th- uh, items that are true goals that make life worth living for myself as a human being, and those things which are definitely goals, but they are more like means towards a higher end. There are tons of things. I mean, getting up in the morning is also a goal. And eating breakfast is also a goal. But obviously, we see that getting up in the morning and eating breakfast is definitely not the end-all of existence. We see that. That's clearer. It gets a little bit more... uh, uh, It gets more complicated when it comes to making money and being successful and other things as well. Now, those are all things which are necessary. There's no doubt that they're necessary. So when I was talking about... But what we have to define for ourselves is what is the higher end, the higher goal of what I'm interested in. Now, the person that says to himself, I came into this world to be an accountant. Okay? I don't think that anybody would really make that statement. I don't think anybody would make that statement. If a person would say, I came into the world for one goal, to make money. Yes, a lot of people would make that statement. Accounting happens to be one way to get there. Now, if a person makes the statement that life is only worth living for the amassing of money, so then yes, chumash is a contradiction because chumash doesn't amass. It doesn't amass money. But if a person says, I want to become an accountant because I want to be self-sufficient, I want to be a mensch, I want to be able to make my contribution to, to the IRS, I want, you know, I want to do things, okay? Right? But I have reasons that are more meaningful to live than just those things. So then, quite conceivably, I work to be an accountant, but I can also have my energies in other places that will develop those other areas. You can have people with talents, 
right? They have tremendous talents. They have to go out, they have to make the buck, they have to be able to pay the rent. The violin is not going to pay the landlord, right? You have to pay the landlord in, in dollars, and the fact that you know how to play violin is not going to help paying the landlord. But the person can say, but my ultimate expression is through my music. So I'll do what I have to in order to exist, and I will allot to it the extent that it's necessary to allot to it, but I'm not going to lose myself in that. Right? So, and that, that, in essence becomes, that, in essence, becomes the question. There are a lot of things that we do as means towards an end, and by the time we're finished with them, those means, in very unconscious ways, become the ends, and we forget the end. And what aggravates it is when we never ask ourselves the question, is it leading me in the right... Is this something that's moving me in that direction? Then it's much more... If I'm on guard, so to speak, and I ask myself from time to time, is where am I today relative to where I was three months ago? Now, I don't want to sound like a, a rabbi uh, two days before Yom Kippur, but it, just to get the gist of, 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 you know, of the flavor of what, of what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying, that's in essence what he's saying. <coughs> Okay. Okay. So essentially, he said. So these, these are the shortcomings that we have to deal with, and and he's leaving it for now. And he's saying, but there is another introduction which is very important for us to touch upon before we move on. So, so far we have a certain amount of definitions. <clears throat> Let me just say, say one more thing and then we'll go further. This, this concept of seeing the whole picture or trying to get a sense of, of the whole before I'm there, before I'm at, at, while I'm still outside of the experience, Right. This is this is the strongest argument that can be used for what I would say is a majority of Jews all over the world that don't have a connection to Judaism. I have found in the little experience that I've had over the last seven, eight years that a majority of Jews have n- haven't either had or given themselves the opportunity to be exposed to what it is. And unfortunately, sometimes judgment is passed even before giving it a, a decent look. There's lo- lots of things that we study. You know, we buy the consumer guides before we buy a car or a major appliance, and do we s- compare it, and you know, we make all kinds of different things. Somehow, for some reason, when it comes to Yiddishkeit, we don't give it the same time of day. You know, now you'll argue there's no consumer's guide, but there is a certain ama- there's a certain amount of study. There's a certain amount. I mean, I've heard virtually hundreds of people shoot off their mouth about Judaism, and they never opened up a book that had anything to do with Judaism. You know, and that's not fear. That's just not fear. They're not not, not fear to me. Not fear to themselves. That's the and. You, you might think that this is oversimplifying what Lozado is saying, is, but it's, it's really it's, it's a challenge of maturity to man to demand of himself, I don't know what the thing is, but I'm going to give a fierce shot at looking at it. 
instead of dismissing it as not being anything without even seeing it to begin with. And this happens so so often. So many people do it that I just wanted to make I just wanted to make mention that this concept of looking at something and then making the comparison, you know, and studying it is it sounds very simple, it sounds very logical, but for some reason it's it's very it's skipped in many situations. Okay, let's go on. Amrahanishama. Mahi. What is this other introduction that you want to give me? Amahasaikal. So the intellect says Hualaka Barhu Hayyachal Vadai something else comes to mind. You'll have to con- you'll have to excuse me tonight. I just want to give you one example. One example. At the beginning of Genesis it says that God created first man and then persuaded him to go into paradise. The question that comes up is why do you have to persuade somebody to go into paradise? If I would go over to you and I would say, I'd like to take you to paradise you'd ask me if it's Hawaii or the Caribbean I realize but if I would say take my word for it it's paradise would I have to persuade you obviously not nevertheless Adam Arishan the first 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 man uh, had to, who was very intelligent he was a spiritual giant had to be persuaded to go into paradise where and that only po- where in, uh, what are the words the words okay the words are in Genesis Vayikach es Adam asher and God took man that He had created. So Rashi explains that that doesn't mean that He took him by the hand, but Vayikach all over in Chumash, Kicha always is a way of getting something, acquiring something. It's used as persuasion. For instance, as it says in Bamidbar, Vayikach Kairach, and Kairach took. He didn't take anything. He persuaded people. So the word yikach means persuasion. And the question that comes up is, why do you have to persuade? And the answer is, is, is the question. That when a person is standing outside of something and doesn't have an experience of it, it can be paradise and you'll have to persuade the person to try it. Because as long as the person is still outside of it, there's a certain amount of distance. Rechuk. This, not that it's not there. But there's a rechuk in the fact that the, it hasn't worked on all of the different parts of who I am as a human being that I can buy it. And you have to persuade me and argue me into there. Once I'm there, I'll look at myself and I'll say, I was sugar that I had to be persuaded. But outside, it only rings when there's a class. Okay, Amrahan Hashem. Somebody wants to find out if there's a class tonight. Amrahan Hashem, Umahi. What is this introduction? That's what we have answering machines for. There's no doubt that God could, could have, if He wanted to, He could have created the world in utter perfection. And not only could He have, but not only could He have, but it would have been completely in line with who God was to create man, to create the world that way. God is, uh, is, is the epitome of perfection. When God gets to work, His work should be an expression of His perfection. 
people usually produce if they're concentrating something that's somewhere near what they're capable of doing provided that the skills have been developed so talking about a God who is perfect and then looking at a creation of his that is less than perfect raises a major philosophical issue if you make the claim that God is perfect, how does he create something that's imperfect? Well, what about the laws of nature? They are considered uh, perfect, uh, reflecting God's perfection. The laws of nature, from a scientific point of view, okay. are Okay, okay. There, 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 uh, there are certain imperfections even within those laws of nature, but I was talking more, not so much in the laws of nature, for the sake of this discussion, more in terms of the shortcomings of man, man himself. Every person has certain shortcomings. If I'm created by God, okay, if the mastermind of the human personality was God, how come everybody has something to deal with? Everybody's got something, you know. Some of it we were born with, some of it we, we, we aggravate with, with what we do, but everybody's got some of that. And the question is, I got my own. Uh, and the question is, how does that come from a perfect God? Now, that has, was a question that most probably never bothered anybody in this room. But this was a question that, that bogged down philosophers for hundreds of years, this question, and led to all kinds of different answers, uh, amongst which was that there is no God that created the world, or that there are lots of gods, and it depends who created you, or who created what part of you. I, you might laugh at these things, but was, these were serious things that you've that evolved because of the intensity of this question. And this question was tackled by a lot of Jewish philosophers, the Maral and Maimonides, and, and many Jewish philosophers had to deal with this question. How do we understand it? Lazaro is addressing this issue now. And it, to us it might be super, superfluous. We're going to see that it's not. It comes up in very intimate ways in our lives. But he's addressing that issue. A perfect God creating that which is not representative of who he is. How do we understand that? And Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata's answer to that is that if we would say, and listen to the logic, if we would say that God couldn't have done better, then we got a major question. If God is perfect or the epitome of perfection and he couldn't have done any better than he did because if he could have, why didn't he? So he couldn't do any better. That's a contradiction. If God is, is a symbol of perfection and then you say he couldn't do something, that's immediately talking about limitation and boundary. And that's a contradiction to talking about a God that has no boundary and has no limitation. There's an co inherent contradiction. But if I say that God could have done better, but purposefully didn't want to make it better, so then that's not an expression of God's inability, it's an expression of his will. I willed it this way. For instance, you get a professor that is called up by an elementary school to teach a general science. He happens to have a thesis on, on astrophysics. And uh, somebody calls him up from an elementary school, please come in and teach general science today. So he walks in, sure, he can, he can, he can floor all the kids with his astrophysics, or bore them with his astrophysics. So what does he have to do? He has to make a conscious effort to bring down his knowledge to the level that the children in the general science class will be able to understand. Does that mean that when he walks out of the room he has just lost his, degree, his doctorate in astrophysics? Because when he was talking to an 11-year-old he had to talk to the 11-year-old on his level? Of course not. 
And this is what Rav Meshachayim Litzat is saying vis-a-vis God and the world that he created as well. It's the same kind of an idea that when God went to create his world, he could have created the world with no limits, with greatness and enormity and greatness beyond all imagination. Something that we couldn't imagine because we're in a world that was created with boundary. So we can't even imagine those worlds. But certainly God could have created worlds with tremendous, with, that would have been an example of his limitless abilities. For certain, he could have done that. If he created 10 billion species, he could have created 20 billion species. But God didn't want to. For whatever his plan for the world was, there was no need to create 20 billion species. And he didn't want to. So now, that concept of holding oneself back and not create, show all your worth, so to speak, and holding yourself back and only producing to the, to the degree that the project requires, that is one concept in what is known in Hebrew as tzimtzum. Tzimtzum. Holding. Now, there is a second concept in tzimtzum, which is that even within the context of what God created, God left it in a potential state and not in an actualized state. That's another form of symptom where God said, here are your gifts, but even your gifts I'm not going to give you in the actualized state, but only in the potential state. That's another form of symptom. So there are basically two symptom and two forms of symptom that God relates to his world in. The symptom in the creation of the world in its format, in its structured format that it has. And then within the structured format, there is yet a second symptom. That second symptom being that where I want you to eventually get, I'm going to hold it back. Not that it's not there, it's there, but it's in a potential state and you have to, un- you have to unwind it, you have to release it. That's another form of symptom. What we've been discussing over here is the second form of symptom. This form of symptom where God creates man with tremendous potentials but constrains those into potentials as opposed to actualized things and says, man, you go ahead and do it. Okay? But the truth of the matter is that other than that symptom, there is yet a second symptom which is the entire format of the world. Don't look at your world and think this is the best that God could have done. Even if man would reach all of his potentials, Every person would be, so to speak, at the peak of his potentials. And then we would look at a world that would be fabulous, Lozado is saying, but don't think that that's all that, that's all that God could produce. For the context of the project that wa- God wanted for this world, that's the symptom that God displayed. Now, next week we'll go into this in, in finer detail. I'd rather take some, some questions that might have been irked by, by what I said this evening. Stacy. Um, you said we have a certain negati- negativity towards doing something that we don't know anything about because we feel limited that we don't understand it. Does that mean we're supposed to try to do everything? No. No. That's an excellent question. And uh, trying to do everything is going to, is, is another one of those bottoms that falls out. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. It means to be open and to do it in process. But very often, there's an unwillingness even to take the single step of process, okay? One thing at a time. Again, going back to the example of Gan Eden, you know, sometimes when you talk to a person, and let's say, um, let's say the person has the options of Shabbos, Kashras, uh, family purity. Let's